As First Nations in BC celebrate the phase-out of sea-based aquaculture, Mi'kmaq chiefs are getting in deeper and deeper, with an industry many fear spells the death knell for wild salmon. I'm Glenn Wheeler, and this is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. This is episode 165. Thanks for your support via patreon.com and via email transfer, migma.matters at gmail.com. Last month, we learned that Meobigag First Nation is into controversial sea-based aquaculture for another million dollars. A lot of that money is going into a robotic system to clean aquaculture pens. Chief Mazelle Joe is not the only aquaculture defender in these parts. Terry Paul, the dean of Atlantic Mi'kmaq chiefs, was skeptical until he went to Norway, where he says he got educated about the positives of sea-based fish farms. In BC, it's a different story. As the numbers of sockeye salmon reach historic lows, First Nations have ramped up the pressure against fish farms. Sea lice and other pathogens that plague farm fish are one of the reasons why the beautiful sockeye is on the verge of extinction. Then, just before the holidays, an important victory. Bowing to the pressure of First Nations and allies, the federal government announced the phase-out of fish farms near the so-called Discovery Islands between Vancouver Island and the BC mainland. It was the culmination of years of effort for Bob Chamberlain, former chief of his community and former VP of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Bob Chamberlain is our guest on Mi'kmaq Matters this week. I started by asking him about the cultural importance of sockeye to First Nations in BC. Well, first, uh, when I was quite young, um, about seven, eight years old, I used to go fishing with my uncle Georgie, my mom's older brother. And my first experience with fish was catching cod and ling cod, rock cod. And and uh, I remember just how good it felt hey, as a little boy to catch a fish, right? Mm. Um, and then to be able to bring it back home to our community on Guilford Island and distribute it to our elders. And from a very young point in my life, I was able to realize just how much the resources of the ocean mean to our people. Hmm. And then as a young man, I, I became a commercial fisherman uh, for uh, working on seine boats for uh, fishing salmon commercially. And at that time, you know, when the fish were running in the Johnston Straits on the east coast of Vancouver Island, we'd go food fishing. And it always felt so good to bring, you know, 100 or 200 sockeye to my Auntie Mabel's house where we'd work on the fish in the backyard and to realize um, every other family in in the city I was living in, Camp River, was doing the exact same thing. Hmm. And to know that the same thing was occurring across the coast and all the way up the rivers into the Fraser and the Skeena. And it's then I realized just how important this resource is to our people across the province. But in terms of culture and our people, it's everything. Um, For our cultural exercise, which people call a potlatch, uh, but our word for it is pasa, um, every life event is celebrated or marked by gathering of people 
where a hereditary chief will exercise his cultural authorities and obligations. And in that effort, there's feeding people. Um, and so we would turn to resources like salmon and all the other resources found in the ocean. And so it's become a very intricate piece of who we are as people in terms of our culture and our traditions. And certainly salmon, as well as all other species of fish are, are more than just a simple menu choice. It's uh, something that we draw a lot of identity from. Hmm. Now, those of us uh, on on this side of Turtle Island um, have heard about your your struggle against uh, against aquaculture, um, and we specifically have heard about uh, what is now known as the Discovery Islands. And I, I looking at mm -hmm. the looking at the map uh, when you're looking at. Uh, uh, a place to put uh, salmon aquaculture, I guess it's the worst possible place because it's between um, the mouth of the Fraser, um, uh, right in the uh, the middle of the straits there. The, so the salmon, the, the wild sockeye, in effect, have to swim around this uh, these aquaculture developments. No, without question. Um, to consider from industry perspective is they like areas that have good tidal flush. Um, provides rich oxygenated water. Uh, it uh, certainly helps with the dispersal of solid waste that comes from these fish farms. But those the areas of strong tidal flush, of course, is where the outmigrating wild salmon are going with. You know, when they're you know when they're only this big, uh, they don't buck the tide; they go with the tide, and so they get brought in very close proximity to the fish farms. And to understand the the threat that fish farms pose to wild salmon that are out migrating, um, we need to understand that the impacts uh, far exceed the, the tenures of their operation. And so the sea lice larvae uh, that are held in the upper water column extend far and beyond uh, the, the site-specific fish farm. And so when they're uh, arranged sequentially up and down the straits, the out-migrating salmon have to navigate through uh, very, very large and significant clouds of sea lice larvae. And recent science has also shown that um, the shedding of pathogens and disease are also more prevalent in the, in the water columns around uh, operating fish farms. Mm -hmm. And so it's, a, it's the perfect disaster in terms of impacts to uh, First Nations traditional food source but also to the environment that relies upon wild salmon returning in abundance to the river systems. And, and speaking of returning salmon, uh, this, uh, this year, the numbers are the lowest in history, uh, fewer than 300,000 returning salmon compared to, you know, maybe 20 million. I can't remember now what the number mm. was, but dramatically lower, uh, as you would say, on on extinction level currently, the uh, the Fraser River uh, sockeye. Exactly, you know, and this is uh, something, it's a, a concern which is uh, being spoken to far beyond the First Nation circles here in British Columbia. When you have, I mean, it's a, an accepted fact that of all the juvenile salmon that leave the river, perhaps one to 4% of them return to be adults that will spawn and perpetuate the run. And so when you have a historic low, like we did in the last couple of years, 
we have to understand then that that's a historic low of eggs being laid in the rivers and a historic low of juveniles leaving the river. And with only one to 4% of those returning as adults, we're going to be looking at uh, abysmal returns for another generation. Mm. Um, I predict that, uh, you know, in, in four years from now or three years from now, when these fish return, we're going to see another historic low return. And this downward spiral to extinction is real. And uh, it's very disappointing to see that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, have managed uh, such an incredible resource to the province of BC in the manner they have, mm. where the focus, beginning with the Fisheries Act, is solely on harvest and economic value rather than preservation and sustainability as the primary driver. Mm. And so you know, this has been commented on in the, the, uh, the Cohen Commission on the Sockeye Salmon of the Fraser, uh, calling out the Department of Fisheries and Oceans as being in a conflict of interest, uh, supporting fish farms and at the same time um, being the ones that are responsible to look after the wild salmon in the environment. And, and you've been uh, a salmon warrior, if I can put it that way, uh, <laughs> over the years in various, in your various capacities as, uh, as a chief, as the vice president of the uh, Union of BC Indians. Um, and recently you were up and down the, the coast out there signing up um, in your role uh, with the First Nations uh, Wild Salmon Alliance, I guess doing some coalition building with First Nations and, um, and uh, outfitters and people like that. Uh, tell us about uh, tell us about that work of uh, of signing people up uh, in in the interests of, of salmon preservation. Well, the the effort this past year, I was working with a group called Wild Salmon for or Wild Salmon Forever, and I, I was brought in with as a result of the uh, First Nation contacts and efforts and the history of fighting for salmon that I have in in the brief fifteen years that I've been involved politically. Um, we have to understand first that uh, when Phil, Finn Donnelly, the MP from Coquitlam, uh, the NDP member, uh, tabled the private members bill, I think it was Bill C-62, uh, to transition open neck cage fish farms to land-based. That was in 2016. And at that time, <clears throat> the First Nation organizations here in BC, being the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, First Nations Summit and the BC Assembly of First Nations all passed resolutions supporting that. And so that, you know, as a result of the information I'd been sharing over the years about what fish farms represent in terms of impact to our traditional food source. And so when the Liberal government made the commitment to transition to land-based closed containment during the last federal election, um, it, it caught people's attention, of course. And so I was able to reach out to the nations um, around the province, uh, made presentations at the organization meetings. Of course, that happened just before the COVID-19 uh, experience fell upon us. Uh, but I was able to continue that, um, reaching out and establishing linkages or strengthening those linkages around the province. So we were able to identify 102 out of the 203 First Nations of British Columbia that support the transition of fish farms out of the ocean. That's very interesting. Now, it might it might be because out here we weren't paying close enough attention, but we got the announcement just before the holidays that the federal government, uh, the announcement via fisheries minister uh, uh, Jordan, that there would be a phase out. And mm. we can talk about uh, the phase out, the timing of it, because there, the operations will continue for two years. 
But just um, just how that announcement came to be, as I say, we were taken by surprise, but maybe you weren't surprised because maybe it was the culmination of all that uh, of all that work of uh, getting people on side, the First Nations and other people. So maybe it was just the political reality for the federal government that they felt that they had to do that. Uh, what were you were you surprised or could you see the announcement uh, coming? Well, we were uh, very happily surprised. Um, I had assisted three of the seven First Nations that were involved in the consultation process on those 19 fish farm licenses. Um, and we put a very strong uh, factual based and, and expression of why these fish farms represent an impact and infringement on our Aboriginal rights. Uh, the problem that we saw is it was a site-specific consultation. So wherever those fish farms were located, nations that had claim to those areas were involved. But where I thought it was a bit tricky for the department and everybody involved was that we were discussing impacts, which would definitely be infringement on Aboriginal rights on a migratory salmon stock. And so the home of those salmon are, reaches up to the very headwaters of the Fraser River. And so we may have been consulting at the table on behalf of uh, the, the nations that were called into consultation, but we realized the outcome was going to affect all First Nations of British Columbia. Hmm. And so when we looked at it and we were able to uh, pull together all the uh, information required, we put a very strong case forward about how the specifics of um, the marine environment perpetuated and enhanced the opportunity of infringement of rights. And what I mean by that is we, we understood and we identified that the water in the areas of greatest concern were highly stratified. And so that being a reality, uh, where the sea lice and the disease pathogen would stay is in the upper water column, exactly where the juvenile salmon would yeah. come. And we also had uh, reports and documentation from the Crown that identified certain areas as very key out-migration routes. And then when we put that alongside uh, current regulations for sea lice, uh, which identified a very specific window of concern to protect wild salmon, um, I just felt we did very well as a team to put together what was necessary. And the transition, um, <clears throat> even though there's still millions of fish in the fish farms now, uh, by this coming out migration window, 80% of those fish are going to be harvested. And once they're harvested, they're not going to be able to repopulate the fish farms with any fish, whether it's a, a transfer from another fish farm in another area of the coast, which is common practice, or bringing in new smolts. And so it's a very, and I think the rationale for that, this decision, had a lot to do with the amount of First Nations that were calling for it, the strong case put forward by the seven individual First Nations involved in the consultation, but also the support of the Liberal MPs of British Columbia, commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, wilderness tourism operators, uh, and certainly the Union of BC Municipalities, uh, which has a resolution from 2018 calling for land-based closed containment. So it became uh, the critical mass that was necessary to speak to protect the salmon stocks was apparent to the government. That's very interesting. It, it shows the, the power of, of, of coalitions. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, 
And I, I think that that's one of the key things, even though <clears throat> may have been at the table on behalf of First Nations, uh, to know that this resource uh, supports the economy and the environment so deeply. And enough British Columbians have now become more aware of the impact that they're speaking up with a louder, more organized voice. Now, let's bring uh, bring the conversation to the to the east coast of uh, of Turtle Island. And of course, there are many. Even though we're we're separated, uh, there's a continent between us. There's a lot of similarity. Perversely, uh, you, the far, the salmon in the operations out there are Atlantic salmon which is uh, kind of weird to begin with, uh, a sort of an invasive <laughs> species. Uh, yeah. so, there, so there's that. But you're, uh, you're also dealing with the same companies uh, that are active out here. Uh, I think of Grieg and, and Moe uh, among them. And um, of course, the other relevant thing is that we have a lot of, um, there's a, uh, a First Nations uh, angle on aquaculture out here. Um, and in fact, uh, a lot of some support and involvement of First Nations in, um, uh, in, uh, in aquaculture. Uh, I think about uh, Chief Terry Paul from, from Member Two uh, and uh, Chief Mazel Joe from uh, Miobigeg on the south coast of Newfoundland, both supporters and, uh, and actors in aquaculture. Uh, I know uh, you were out here uh, on a tour, um, maybe it was about two years ago, um, speaking about aquaculture, I, I don't think you crossed paths with uh, either Chief Terry or Chief Mazeljo at that time. Uh, I don't know if you've run, ac run across them at uh, uh, AFM meetings or anything like that, and I've had any conversation about um, aquaculture. Well, I met Chief uh, Chief Paul at the uh, when his nation hosted the National Aboriginal Fisheries Forum three a uh, number of years ago. Uh, when it comes to First Nation decision-making, I mean, certainly um, every nation has the authority to make such decisions for their territories. And this is something that all First Nation leaders across the, the, the country uh, wish to see respected. Um, so, you know, I don't, uh, I've learned, I used to be quite uh, pointed about nations that support an industry that our nation didn't support. But I've come to realize that if we wanted our voice respected, we also had to respect other nations' choices. Um, where it got uh, a little awkward here is the, the migratory nature of salmon in British Columbia. And so what was happening at a site-specific fish farm had broader impacts to other nations' Aboriginal rights. Uh, here in BC, we're quite fortunate to have such a, a wide variety of, of salmon. Uh, I know that I understand that in Atlantic Canada, you simply have the Atlantic salmon. Mm -hmm. And I know as a result of a whole variety of issues um, that the Atlantic salmon, the wild ones are not doing so well out in that part of the, of the country. Certainly not. And, you know, so I think of it this way. If a nation was able to derive uh a livelihood, which now we're, uh, thank goodness, talking about a moderate livelihood. I uh, really want to hold my hands up to the Mi'kmaq people uh, for the stand that they've taken. Out here in British Columbia, we have deep admiration uh, for the efforts that are going on right now in terms of the moderate livelihood of the lobster fishery. Um, it's about time. Uh, it only took 21 years. Um, but that, to me, shows how government does not really want to 
uh, recognize rights-based fisheries and to continue to oppress our people uh, in activities that we've always done. And so if there were healthy and abundant Atlantic salmon stocks, I would believe that the nations out there would also be enjoying uh, economy and uh, sustenance from wild salmon. But when resources such as that, that have a deep tradition within our people are impacted, uh, we still have to find a way to look after our peoples within this oppressive environment of Canada. I don't know if uh, if you've had uh, a conversation out there, but of course, uh, among Mi'kmaq people, there are different points of view about salmon aquaculture, about uh, sea-based aquaculture. And um, there, are, there are those who defend it and, and who say, you know, we need the jobs in these small communities. There's not much else. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a source of protein. And if properly regulated, then, you know, uh, it will be okay. So there is that uh, there is that point of view, and then there is the the other point of view about uh, the importance of wild salmon and the risks of of aquaculture. The comment about regulated properly, um, for me, uh, we start to have a discussion about what is the true definition or an acceptable broad definition of what sustainability is. Um, I've learned that, you know, the government has a very different perspective on what is sustainable in uh, largely in opposition to how First Nations view the environment and concerns. Uh, they come forward with science, which is supposed to be able to provide a foundation uh, for regulations and policy decisions. And yet I've had uh, the time to examine uh, the CSAS process, the Canadian Scientific Advisory Secretariat. And when you examine this process closely, um, you'll see that industry is able to influence every component of it from the very beginning to the very end and to populate the different pieces to, well, I, you know, I want to believe, well, no, I believe that they steer away from the truth is my opinion. And being able to, I mean, what other uh, government process uh, allows an industry to help make a decision on what impacts they have on an environment. Mm -hmm. You know, as a regulator, to me, that is just completely uh, wrong-footed. Um, I think that the international peer review process is one that needs to be brought here rather than one that's tailored to assist the industry and to allow the industry to assist government to make decisions that are to their benefit. Mm -hmm. To me, that's not uh, objective at minimum. And I suppose, you know, looking at where the levels are, maybe, maybe we have to go to the precautionary principle because with, with salmon in BC and salmon on this side of the continent, uh, these record low levels and in danger of extinction, perhaps uh, the situation requires um, uh, precaution and elimination of as much risk as possible in the circumstances. I, I completely agree. And that has been uh, the mantra of many First Nations looking to safeguard wild salmon in British Columbia. Where is the implementation of the precautionary principle? And when you do your examination at the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, you'll realize very quickly that there is no policy for the implementation of the precautionary principle in terms of fish farms. And so to me, uh, that is one of the impediments, uh, but I think there's a greater political, a lack of political will to implement the precautionary principle. And 
what I find is the government's design things such as the CSAS process, uh, which helps them uh, provide a footing to make decisions to continue to assist this industry. And in doing so, are in a conflict of interest in terms of their primary responsibility, which is to wild fisheries and the environment. Mm -hmm. And Justice Cohen in the Cohen Commission was very clear on that out, out here in British Columbia. Um, so I don't think that the department is in a, a strong position uh, to look after wild salmon when they're creating scenarios which assist an industry focused on jobs and employment at the expense of the environment and other wild fisheries. Well, Bob, I'm uh, congratulations on on the outcome of uh, of your work. Many years of work uh, came to fruition. So it was an excellent uh, Christmas present you got out there. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, it uh, certainly was. And, you know, the thing now, I mean, we've removed uh, one very significant impediment to healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks. Certainly, it's not the only one. Uh, but now uh, we have to face the reality that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans management of the fishery here, uh, the salmon runs, has brought us exactly to where we are today. Mm. And so now the work is to... Uh, continue to keep that coalition of concerned citizens across this province focused and bringing solutions to government to rebuild the salmon stocks here in British Columbia. Mm. There's a lot to do, global warming, um, wildfires on the rivers and so on. There's just a lot of habitat rehabilitation and restocking and so on that needs to go on. Now that we've removed uh, two very significant places on the coast, which is the Discovery Islands and the Broughton Archipelago as well, that we've created a better scenario for uh, the rebound uh, mm. of salmon in British Columbia. Mm. Well, Bob, it might be that uh, maybe we're a little uh, more likely to have some salmon for the seven generations, just like uh, you had when you were a kid out there uh, on, on the island. So uh, we, have, we have some reason for optimism. Well, I, you know, uh, optimism and uh, advancing uh, Aboriginal peoples within this country is sometimes lacking. But I certainly just want to, again, uh, congratulate the Mi'kmaq people and, and the work that they're doing to implement their treaty right and to stand strong against the crown that wants to minimize and deny that right. Um, I know that here, uh, we many First Nation leaders are talking of that activity and very pleased to see them making that stand and uh, don't let up, uh, mm. keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we have a country to turn around to understand um, how they diminish and perpetuate systemic racism towards Indigenous people. And it's through strong efforts like what the Mi'kmaq people are doing right now that are gonna continue to drive that. And I just, I'm so happy to, to see the leadership and the community come together to advance that. And mm. Good on you. It's, it's really inspiring. Bob Chamberlain, Chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. And that's it for the program. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Listen to Mi'kmaq Matters wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Nemaltis. No